This is The Great Composers from member-supported Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. March 28, 1897, St. Petersburg, Russia. An audience gathers to hear a concert of new works by up-and-coming composers, and young Sergei Rachmaninoff is the star of the show. Rachmaninoff has top billing with his new first symphony, but instead of finding him in the box seat reserved for dignitaries, Rachmaninoff is nowhere to be found. Oh, I found him. <laughs> He's hiding under a staircase backstage. Imagine the towering six foot six Rachmaninoff with a look that could scare small children <laughs> is hiding underneath a staircase. He knows it's not going to go well. He's so embarrassed, he can't bring himself to face the audience. Every time he hears something he doesn't like, he winces and covers his ears. It's pure torture for him. This was the scene of Rachmaninoff's big symphonic debut for his Symphony No. 1, which you're hearing now. It was a disaster, and the gadflies were ready and waiting. The critics slaughtered this symphony. Oh, absolutely butchered it. And it didn't help that the conductor, you might say, had had a few too many before the concert. Yeah, that would be none other than Alexander Glazunov, a bit of, of a patriarch to the Russian music scene. But boy, he didn't do Rachmaninoff any favors. And there wasn't sufficient rehearsal time either. Yeah, true. And Rachmaninoff's critics were ready to pounce on any flaw they could find in the symphony. I mean, to be clear, they wanted it to be a failure. And they helped to make sure that it was a failure. This is the Great Composer series on Rachmaninoff from Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. I'm host Carla Walker, along with conductor Scott O'Neill in the CPR Performance Studio. We ended the last episode about three and a half years before this disastrous premiere, and Rachmaninoff's mentor and musical advocate Tchaikovsky had died unexpectedly, devastating Rachmaninoff. Yeah, and Rachmaninoff reacted by writing his second elegiac trio, dedicating it to Tchaikovsky. But by writing this trio, Scott, you've said Rachmaninoff put a bullseye on his back. Oh, yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, the older establishment, you could call it, consisted of a group of composers known as the Russian Five. Also called the Mighty Handful because they were a mighty handful. <laughs> yeah, actually. Uh, and it was led by its eldest member, Cesar Cui. Take a listen to one of Cesar Cui's pieces. This story has a villain, and Kui is that villain who, let's be honest here, he was first and foremost an army officer, then a music critic, and then a composer. So we're not exactly talking about one of the leading luminaries among Russian composers. But on the other hand, he was hugely influential as a music critic, and he had a very narrow vision of what Russian music should be like. And it didn't have any room for Tchaikovsky and now Rachmaninoff's musical vision. Which was? Well, it boils down to being more European in their approach, German in particular. 
Like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. Precisely. That stuff with fugues and sonata forms where you take an idea, break it down into parts, manipulate it, develop it. They saw that as way too formal, too academic. Beethoven, too academic? Right. Yeah, even Beethoven was seen as too academic. You know, the way he bases his fifth symphony on a four-note idea. You know, he builds it up, takes it apart, eventually puts it back together. They thought that was too cerebral, too fussy. All right, if that's too fussy, what did the Russian Five want? Their approach was to base melodies on Russian folk tunes or liturgical chants and to use a kind of an intuitive, more natural approach. Can you give an example? Well, yeah. I mean, like Rimsky-Korsakov's Russian Easter Overture. I mean, here's a member of the Russian Five writing exactly what they thought music should be like. Every theme in this piece comes from the Russian Orthodox liturgy, that is, from the people, something every Russian would know. The first thing we hear... I mean, it even sounds like a chant, right? Yeah. It's straight from the church, and it's called Let God Arise. Let God arise, and let his enemies be scattered. But the chant that really kind of crowns the climax is called Christ is Risen. Remsky-Korsakov's Russian Easter Overture, quintessentially Russian because, as you've just demonstrated, Scott, the tunes are actually Russian chants. But it's also about a uniquely Russian tradition, Russian Easter. Right. He even said that he was really trying to capture what's actually kind of a quasi-pagan spirit of rejoicing of the, quote, bright holiday, because once you get there, the party is on. Which is how Russian Easter is celebrated. (laughs) So it pleased the people because they knew the tunes, and it pleased the musical establishment because it used Russian music as its basis. So this piece, the Russian Easter Overture, is an ideal piece of Russian classical music. Which is really kind of interesting when you think about it because the whole idea of a Russian musical establishment at the time was kind of a new thing. I mean, European composers had been composing masterpieces for years, but there really wasn't much happening in Russia in terms of classical music. So it's pieces like the Russian Easter Overture that actually helped define what Russian classical music should be. And that leads us back to Rachmaninoff Symphony Number no. 1. So amidst all of this discussion and arguing about what Russian classical music should be, which approach did Rachmaninoff take in his first symphony? <laughs> Pretty much exactly the European approach, like Tchaikovsky. (laughs) 
So Rachmaninoff takes that original theme Then in the middle of the piece, he kind of turns it into a fugue. I mean, kind of sounds like Bach, right? Right. Pretty European. Yeah, pretty scholarly. Because we, <laughs> we all know how much Kui just loves that European stuff, right? Right. And he put those opinions in the newspaper. Oh, my gosh. It was probably the most scathing critique I have ever heard. He wrote, if there was a conservatory in hell and one of the talented pupils was commissioned to compose a symphony based on the seven plagues of Egypt, Mr. Rachmaninoff would have fulfilled his task brilliantly. The inhabitants of hell must be delighted. Yeah, he's not mincing any words here, is he? That was brutal, but there's more. This music leaves an evil impression with its broken rhythms, obscurity and vagueness of forms, meaningless repetition of the same short tricks, the nasal sound of the orchestra, the strained crash of the brass, and above all, its sickly, perverse harmonies. Seriously? Evil impressions, sickly, perverse. What is a sickly, perverse harmony? (laughs) Good question. I don't know. You know... There are places where Rachmaninoff's coming from something like this, and he'll, but then he'll change the melody above, and you'll hear, it it sounds oppressive and sounds dramatic, but it's supposed to, so yeah, I don't know, it sounds fine to me, but let's be clear about this, this was not a critique, this was propaganda. Wait, what do you mean? Well, this is not an artistic appraisal of a piece. This was meant to influence public opinion against an entire approach to music and specifically against Rachmaninoff. So Cesar Cui uses his influence as a critic in the newspaper to suppress this artistic movement within Russian musical culture, which he sees as being too international, too European, in other words, not Russian. Without a doubt. The old arch enemy was Tchaikovsky. And when Rachmaninoff aligned himself with Tchaikovsky and wrote his first symphony in this European style, Rachmaninoff made himself the new main target for the Russian old-school establishment. The bullseye on his back. You're hearing part of Rachmaninoff's Symphony Number no. 1, and the premiere of this European-style piece was a complete flop. Remember, he's hiding underneath the stairs, blocking his ears, trying not to listen. The critics shred his big debut. This moment of triumph turns into total misery. How did he handle this, Scott? He went silent. Rachmaninoff later wrote, I felt like a man who had suffered a stroke and for a long time had lost the use of his head and hands. This must have been devastating for Rachmaninoff. In fact, when he went silent, he went silent for a long time. Three years. Now, to be clear, it's not like he quit music altogether during those three years, but you know, he pursued a successful conducting uh, career, especially opera conducting. He still played piano. He still taught. 
but he didn't write any new music. So how did he get through this? Well, Rachmaninoff's aunt thought that meeting one of his literary idols might help. So a family friend set up a meeting with the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace. Mm. And they hoped, you know, maybe it would help shake him out of his gloom and maybe inspire him to compose again. Ah, intervention number two. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Last episode, we talked about intervention number one, where his cousin sees him floundering, steps in, sends the young Rachmaninoff to the Moscow Conservatory. And here is intervention number two, where yet again, a family member steps in to help. Indeed. So when Rachmaninoff showed up at Tolstoy's house, Tolstoy was playing chess. So Russian of him, right? (laughs) Rachmaninoff was so nervous and awestruck being in the presence of the Tolstoy that his knees were literally shaking. Tolstoy saw this and sat him down with him, rubbed his knees, Hmm. and tried to encourage him. He said, young man, do you suppose I have no troubles, never hesitate and lose confidence in myself? All of us have difficult moments, but this is life. Hold your head up and keep on your appointed path. Well, that had to have been inspiring. Yeah, and I think Tolstoy meant well. But then Rachmaninoff sat down at the piano and played this song called Fate. Pretty obvious, right? Clearly quoting Beethoven 5. Which, of course, is German music, not Russian. So what did Tolstoy think about it? Oh, he hated it. And I do mean hated it. Tolstoy asked Rachmaninoff, Tell me, does anybody really need such music? I must tell you how I dislike it all. Beethoven is nonsense. Ah, so intervention number two, it bombs. Rachmaninoff goes to one of the greatest writers in Russia, Tolstoy, for encouragement. But he finds that Tolstoy has the exact same aesthetic as the Russian Five, meaning that Russian art should be Russian. Yeah, and when Tolstoy realized how deeply he had hurt Rachmaninoff, he tried to apologize, but... The damage was done. So here's Rachmaninoff trying to get out of his funk, but he came out of that meeting even more depressed than before. Yeah, at this point, I mean, the tidal wave of negativity Rachmaninoff was facing is obvious, but you know, I do have to wonder about some reports from various biographers that maybe Rachmaninoff himself was actually making matters even worse. Hmm, how so? Well... Okay, Rachmaninoff is very sensitive to criticism, even a bit neurotic about it. Fine. But when I think of the image of him cowering under a staircase while his symphony is being premiered, I think, what is wrong with you? I mean, stand up and be a man for crying out loud. Figure it out. They were going to pan your symphony, whether it was good or bad, simply based on the fact that you wrote it like Tchaikovsky. He was so self-conscious, thin-skinned. Yeah, one biographer in particular, Viktor Serov, paints Rachmaninoff as this spoiled, nervous, egocentric brat who expects an artistic giant like Tolstoy to fawn all over him. As Serov puts it, Tolstoy was speaking to him as a grown-up man. What Sergei needed was a nurse. Ouch. I know. I mean, it kills me to hear someone talk about Rachmaninoff that way. I'm like, hey, 
You take that back. Right. But, you know, I get it. Even being an advocate for Rachmaninoff, even I have to admit that, you know, really he needed to just kind of harden himself to adversity and just grow up. But we know that Rachmaninoff goes on to be the great Rachmaninoff, the writer of some of the most quintessentially Russian pieces. So how does he overcome this writer's block? With a little help from his friends. In fact, a lot of help from his friends. It requires another intervention by some of Rachmaninoff's friends, but it ends up being one of the great musical comeback stories of all time, and it leads to this masterpiece. We'll have that for you next time on the Great Composers series on Rachmaninoff from CPR Classical. I'm Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Thank you to CPR's contributing members for making this podcast possible. Learn about membership at CPR.org.